Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Amen. Thanks, Marilee. Good morning, you guys. How you doing? How you doing? Oh, good, good. I didn't hear it first. <laughs> well, I'm very glad to be here this morning. I missed last week. I wasn't feeling well, so I watched from home. Dennis Sager brought an amazing word, didn't he? He and Kaku are such faithful pastors. I call them missionaries to Japan, but they live there. They just view themselves as pastors of a church. Um, But they've been there for the long haul. They're doing a great job in a really tough place for the gospel. And it was cool to hear him say to focus on the God of the impossible instead of the impossible things in front of us. So I've been meditating on that this week. Conrad, would you mind turning me down a little bit in the room? Thank you. Um, So you don't hear me cough as much or clear my throat. (laughs) So this week, we're going to start a two-week series. Everybody say two weeks. I'm going to try to keep you awake. Two-week series called Faith Renovation. So we're really used to seeing people renovate their homes, right? We have entire television networks dedicated to such things. Um, On these shows, some of the houses at the beginning of the show are in really rough shape, right? That's kind of the point. And by the end, there's this beautiful transformation. Um, In the same way, Christians sometimes find themselves with a crumbling faith. It's in need of renovation. And with the right perspective and some good tools, our faith can be transformed into something solid, enduring, and beautiful. And so that's what this series is about. That's why it's called Faith Renovation. And uh, just to help you picture it, I thought it might be good to go back in the Menser family timeline about 20 years to our first house Marilee and I bought. This little gem in Portage was a bank foreclosure in lovely shape, as you can see from some of the other photos. We had a nice garden in the gutters. We had a hole through the front door and many of the windows, and the carpet was just lovely. Just lovely. I don't know how good it shows up on the slide, but it is stained beyond grossness. Um, We didn't have kids yet. We're just a young couple starting out. Um, The price was right on this one. (laughs) And so we went for it. To say it needed a renovation is a bit of an understatement. Um, Some of you in the room, looking at my parents, helped us with that. Some family members who helped us out. Thank you so much. (laughs) It took a lot of work to see it through, but Marilee and I went and toured the house, right, before we put an offer on it and bought it, and uh, we saw all of this disgustingness, but we also saw something else. We thought it could be really beautiful. We thought it could be a great home for us, and so we went for it. We could see past the the dirt, (laughs) the disgustingness, the neglect, um, and we could see what it could be. I don't know how we saw it, (laughs) but we saw it. So we replaced things, we cleaned things, we patched holes, you know, we we even changed the floor plan in the dining room. It was really awkwardly set up. And so we took down a wall, we built, added one on in a different spot, and we changed the floor plan of the house so that we can make better use of it. And um, it looked something like this when we were done. That's a little better, right? You can't tell quite as much from that far away, but like, that's a little better. Yeah. So good for us. We had a great, we had a great house renovation, but hopefully that helps you think about what a faith renovation might be like. 
you know, when you come to the Christian faith, you have to decide if you buy in or not. You know, if you tour Christianity, you will see some griminess, some dirtiness, some broke stuff, because the church is full of people like you and me, and we're broke sometimes. Sometimes we got some stuff going on. The church is full of fallen, sinful people. And so there's a history with plenty of brokenness in it. But the question is, can you see past that to the intrinsic value of the Christian faith and of the church? You know, there's a firm foundation. It's Jesus. There's good bones to work with when it comes to Christianity, like the Bible, (laughs) And our history as the church may have some really bad stuff in it, but it's got some really great moments too. Some really historically great things happen because of people who follow Jesus doing what his word says to do, being the church. And it's benefited the whole world. So a faith renovation might include things like Um, updating or replacing simplistic worldviews that you held when you were younger. It might mean cleaning up who you think God is. Maybe his image, his reputation's been tarnished or just drugged through the mud, kind of like the carpet in the house we bought. You know, people misrepresent God constantly. And if you've taken that to be truth about him, you might need to clean up your mental image of God. That's a faith renovation. You might need to patch up some theological holes in the wall in your thinking about who God is, what this world is, who you are. It might have some holes in it that you need to patch up. Maybe you've got some leaky faucets, just drip, drip, dripping doubts, drip, drip, dripping doubts. You're like, I don't know what to make of that. But maybe you can give it some attention. You might need to adjust the layout. Maybe the way you've organized the Christian faith into your actual life isn't working real good. And you could actually change the way that it's laid out to make better use of it in your practical daily life. Yeah, I see it resonating around the room. Good, I'm glad. I liked it too. So think about it. Do you have vision for a beautiful faith result? Do you see the value in the Christian faith and in Jesus Christ, who it's based on? Do you have the patience for a project like this? (laughs) A lot of people look at a house like our first one and go, no way. (laughs) Bill, I'm out. (laughs) And honestly, looking back, I don't know what I was thinking. But do you have the patience for something as important as a faith renovation? Are you willing to invest what it takes to renovate. So I want to begin uh, in our scripture passage for this series in John chapter 20. The setting for the story is after Jesus has risen from the dead and he had appeared to some of his disciples, as we'll see, not all. (laughs) Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, Tom, we've seen the Lord. He said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them this time. Thank goodness. And though the Lord, the Lord, 
Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Let me get a drink, guys. First week back. Now, has anyone ever heard the label Doubting Thomas? Yeah. I don't blame Thomas for what he said. <laughs> and I wouldn't, I wouldn't just uh, flippantly slap that label on this guy. I don't think he was a lesser disciple. I don't think he had a lesser faith than the other guys in Jesus' core group of followers. <clears throat> Actually, all four gospel accounts mention doubt and astonishment of the disciples. He wasn't the only one. Um, but in this account, we get a real personal look at it, right? how it played out for Thomas. And actually, I think this passage is really a story about Jesus, much more than it's a story about Thomas. And so I want to look at it from that perspective. You know, think about what Jesus was walking into as he, I don't know, walked through the wall or appeared <laughs> inside their locked doors. Thomas had waited a whole week, right? Imagine it. You go to the store for milk, right? Jesus is dead, buried in the grave, and the women come back one morning and go, he's alive. And Peter and John are like, the tomb is empty. And everybody's like, whoa, what's going on? And then you go to get milk, and Jesus shows up while you're gone. Like, I was gone for five minutes. Jesus, <laughs> your timing stinks. I wanted to see you too. <laughs> and then he waits a whole week with that, right? I'm not going to believe it unless I see him too. And he waits a week, probably the longest week of his life. But how does Jesus approach such a person? Right? When he shows up, he, he's like, hey, peace, guys. I'm here. And then he turns to Thomas. I view it. We don't have tone in the text on the pages of our Bible. But I view it as so compassionate. Thomas, look. You can touch it. It's okay. Man. My heart is overwhelmed just thinking about that. You can touch my hands. Go ahead. Here's, the, here's where they pierced me with a spear when I died on that cross. Put your hand in it. Come close. It's okay. <clears throat> it's like he's saying, I'm here to help you turn your doubt into faith. In a very real and personal way. And I love Thomas's response. It's so good. It's actually super theologically deep. <laughs> my Lord and my God. Lord, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. I give up. I, th I thought I had this stuff figured out. I clearly don't. There you are, alive from the dead. I'm going to serve you with my life. And God, right? He acknowledges who else could rise from the dead like this, come through the locked door and show me, you know, what should be dead, cold hands? You're God. You're king. Guys, we live in a time of doubt, disillusionment, and disbelief. 
plenty of people are saying that Christianity is broken, damaged, or in need of demolition altogether. Maybe some of your own experiences are telling you that. So in this series, our goal is to find Jesus in the place of doubt and deconstruction, and hopefully join Thomas on the other side of a faith renovation by saying, my Lord and my God. Let's find Jesus where we have doubts. Let's find Jesus where we have questions. I think he wants to meet you there personally, just like he did for Thomas. So if you're going through a faith renovation right now, this series is for you, (laughs) as if you had any doubt. Hopefully it'll give you perspective, balance, and a good foundation on which to renovate. Um, But if your faith feels secure and strong, this series is also for you. I've got two reasons why. One is that faith renovations are meant to be ongoing. It's not a one-time thing. It's not like, oh, I deconstructed once and now I'm great forever. But actually, faith renovations are meant to be ongoing. Christians constantly need to update their faith. We mature, we grow, we learn more about God, and then we have to incorporate it into our lives. It actually transforms us and changes us, and we live in a different way than we did before. Some people might call that deconstruction. I'm calling it faith renovation in this series. In church history, it's more often called spiritual formation or just discipleship. That's what it is. Uh, In Romans, Paul calls it being transformed by the renewing of your mind. But strong, faithful Christians renovate their faith regularly as they learn to inhabit the way of Jesus. That's my fancy way to put it. (laughs) strong, faithful Christians renovate their faith regularly as they learn to inhabit the way of Jesus. So that's one reason it's for you if your faith is secure and strong. The other reason is you're meant to be a guide to others, a renovation guide, if you will. You're called to represent Jesus to those in the midst of doubt and disbelief. He offered his hand and his side to Thomas, and you're called to extend your hand, scars and all, whatever you've got, for the benefit of others. So here's a couple of ways that might play out. These are the kinds of people I hope we are here at New Day. The ones that offer kindness that leads to repentance, that offer humility and compassion for others, that speak the truth in love, that have a ministry of reconciliation. That's the kind of renovation guide you're called to be. Besides, there's already plenty of people yelling and screaming and fighting and furiously typing comebacks into their social media, or maybe they're doing it with their thumbs. I don't know. You decide which way they they vent on social media and tear each other down. But everyone's already identifying the evils of the other side on every issue and getting all upset about it and outraged. That job's taken. But the job that's still available is people full of the fruit of the Spirit who offer life-changing truth in love to the people who need it. That job's not taken. There's plenty of positions available. We're hiring. (laughs) Aren't you glad someone offered that to you? You're a Christian here today. Are you ready to offer that to the next generation of believers? So this series is for those in a faith renovation. It's for those who feel secure, strong in their faith, 
but it's also for those considering Christianity, right? If you're wondering what Jesus is all about, maybe you're here today or you're watching this video later or right now online, and you're wondering what Jesus is about. Maybe you think he might be a God worth following. Maybe you've started to hear a voice calling you. So know his heart toward you is just like it is toward Thomas. He extends nail-scarred hands to you. He offers you a place at his spear-pierced side. You're welcome here at his side and here at New Day. Come to him with your doubts, disillusionments, disbeliefs. You don't have to have it all figured out. He looks at you with a fierce, loyal love in his eyes, and what he says is simple. Come follow me. Let's grab a drink. Everyone without a water bottle is getting thirsty right now. Sorry, mine's taken, and it's way up here. It'd be awkward if you came and got it. Plus, I was sick last week. How much do you really trust that I'm better? All kinds of problems with using my water. So use your own. All right. So faith renovation, this is a series. It's meant to be a response to the cultural phenomenon of deconstruction, guys. I called it something different, but that's no secret. That's what we're doing here. Um, And deconstruction means many things to many people. Good luck finding a definition anyone can agree upon. Um, It covers this like huge spectrum of like way over here, It's a trigger word that gets people angry. And way over here, it's a badge of honor for other people. And it's everything in between. And there's probably somebody mad that I even said what I just said about it. Who knows? So the term deconstruction comes from someone in academia. His name is Jacques Derrida. And it sort of describes this philosophical and literary process um, of analysis. Okay? And so... I'm going to use this working definition for deconstruction. The process of taking apart ideas in order to reinterpret them based on personal experience. Plenty of people would disagree with that, but that's my take on it, of the cultural phenomenon that it has become anyway. In this view, there's no true meaning. That doesn't exist. Instead, it undermines all sense of shared knowledge about objective reality And it brings everything down the rabbit hole of total subjectivity. All truth claims become collective hunches at best. Because everything is up to the interpretation of each individual. We could talk a lot about that, but we won't. What does it mean for us (laughs) and the current cultural phenomenon? While people are increasingly bringing some version of Derrida's approach to Christianity and the Bible, they're pulling apart the components of Christian traditions and doctrines and even scripture itself to see what it's made of. And if it were to stop right there, we would just call it evaluation. Or we could call it renovation. And I'd be a big fan of it. That's great. (laughs) So let's just say renovation is the process of looking closely at what we believe and updating it as we mature. And that's great, right? I said that's called discipleship. That's a good thing. So if you grow up in the church, you're constantly picking up on stuff. 
you know, little bits of doctrine and theology and Christian practice. You just sort of pick them up as life happens around you, as you do life, as people interact with you, as you listen to some guy preach on Sunday morning for about 30, hopefully not 45 minutes. Um, It's kind of like language comes for a child when they begin to speak. You get it in bits and pieces. There's no like instant download of everything, right? Those of you with young children know they don't instantly speak English perfectly and fluently with a broad vocabulary. Um, And Christians gain their faith slowly over time by living in a community of believers like New Day, right? And again, like children, we don't, at the beginning, always get every little nuance of what's going on, both in how church works, but who Jesus is, who God is, what the Bible really says. We get it bit by bit. Sometimes we miss the context for like theological statements or why we do what we do at church. We've just always done it. We're not sure why. But comparing it to kids, I think of my kids. Both happen to not be here today as I share a story about them. (laughs) But I think about when they were learning to talk. And Aaliyah had this word she made up called clatch. Everybody say clatch. Thank you. That was fun. So we think it was a combination of maybe like clasp and latch. I might clatch this shirt when I do the buttons. You might clatch the door, uh, but clatch. It was Aaliyah's word. Super cute. And Micah had a word. It was drabup. Everybody say drabup. Now, Micah, when he was little, he'd be sitting in his high chair at the dinner table, you know, like you're supposed to, but he'd stand up and he'd say, Drabup. <laughs> and then he'd boop, like slide back down onto his butt in his seat. And so what Drabup, we came to realize Drabup means to stand up in a slightly precarious situation. <laughs> Drabup. He'd kind of say it, he'd always say it like that. Drabup and look at us with a little mischief and fun in his eye. <laughs> I asked them permission to share that story and they both approved. But, okay, would Marilee and I get mad at them for saying clatch or drape up? No, absolutely not. They were learning to communicate with us, with each other, with the world, right? We didn't despise their early sense of the English language or their made-up word. It was actually adorable and memorable menser moments that I finally look back on. But they started to grow up, right? They go to school. They start running into people who don't know what clatch or drabup means and who don't say that like we did in our house. Excuse me for a second here. Oh, that was good. I should have turned it off. Hmm. Maybe we could make up a word for that. Let me know what you think that was. <laughs> it wasn't a drabup. Okay. So <clears throat> it's the same with Christianity. We learn the best we can where we're at, right? Given our current ability to take things in, understand it, and apply it to our lives, we do so. Um, But we grow and mature. We run into people who think about Christianity different than us. We run into situations that challenge the ways we've thought about it. And we have to adjust. We mature. We grow up like Micah and Aaliyah. But she's taller than me. Come on. (laughs) 
a lot taller than me. Where'd it come from? But that's an aside. Okay. I said I wouldn't preach for 45 minutes. Okay. That's spiritual formation and discipleship, guys. That's called becoming a mature Christian. It's what we're all doing, hopefully. Hopefully you're not still saying Drabup 20 years later. Hopefully you don't have the, the uh, childlike understanding of Christianity that you had 20 years ago if you've been a Christian that long. Or hopefully 20 years from now, you've matured and grown and learned how to apply what you know to your life in a more mature way. Okay, if we consistently bring all that we have to God and to Scripture, the updating process brings us closer to Him and more in alignment with the truth. It's also really practical. We actually gain something like perspective, attitudes, approaches, faith, security, maturity that helps us in life's difficult circumstances. It's really practical. So if you're deconstructing in this sense, good job. Keep up the good work. You're on the right track. But if someone does deconstruction with that next step, like Jacques Derrida's type of deconstruction, and starts reading their own experiences into who God is or into the Bible and reinterpreting its meaning, that's a whole different thing than what we just described, isn't it? There's the slide that says that. (laughs) So that's a deconstruction problem. Instead of evaluating our understanding and aligning it with God's truth, it becomes a truth, in quotes, of our own making. That's not Christianity at all. What do we sing this morning? Jesus, you're the king and you're the center of it all. But the cultural phenomenon of deconstruction subtly shifts the balance of the universe from God as king and center of it all to me as king and center of it all. You see that? My experiences dictate what the Bible should or shouldn't say, who God should be, what he should be like. And that's not Christianity. That's something else. Give it a name if you're going with that religion, but don't call it Christianity because it's actually not. Okay? This type of deconstruction critiques Christianity according to external standards, not God and his word. Okay? So I put together three uh, unworthy standards of truth to talk about this morning. Moral intuition, feelings, and the social imaginary. Ooh, exotic. (laughs) Okay, let's take them each one at a time. Moral intuition. So some people start holding up the Bible and who God is to their own sense of morality, their moral intuition. You know, they might ask a question like, why would God wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah? That doesn't line up with my moral intuition. My internal sense of right and wrong doesn't agree with this. Okay? There's nothing wrong with that question. That's a great question. It's a question that should be asked. The problem comes in with where we go for the answer. Right? There are lots of good questions to ask about the Bible and about the faith of Christianity. But where you go for the answers is so critical. Let's rephrase it. Instead of just asking about Sodom and Gomorrah, someone deconstructing might say, I don't think I can serve a God who destroyed a city like that. 
right? So let's just see what's really built into that statement for a second. There's like an implied elevation of one's own moral intuition into like a seat of judgment by which God's actions can be deemed right or wrong. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. Wordy. I got all wordy with this one. (laughs) There's an implied elevation of one's own moral intuition. What's going on in here, my sense of morality goes higher and looks down at God and his actions and what scripture says and judges whether it's right or wrong. That's what is really happening subtly. There's a built-in assumption that I actually have the ability or even the right to judge God's character. And this is really dangerous territory. (laughs) When Job realized he was doing this, here's what he did. (laughs) Everybody go. And then if you have a beard, go. Oh, that didn't feel good. (laughs) He clapped his hand over his mouth. So God has words for Job and those of us who get in that situation you don't want to be in. I pulled out some excerpts from the end of the book of of Job for you. God says, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me? Okay, so what's my point? (laughs) Is it to hate on deconstructors or make them feel ashamed? No. Remember where I started. Nail-scarred hands of Jesus, compassion, personal connection. I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad if you're asking tough questions, or even if you've slid into that judgment seat without realizing it. The point I'm trying to make is to bring clarity to a sneaky little deception that wants to creep into your faith renovation. It is a sneaky little deception. It's easy to get there without knowing it. And so I've got to point it out so you can be aware of it and have a faithful renovation of your faith. You can ask questions in ways that are profitable and will bring you closer to God, not further from him. Really, what's sneakily happening is a posture of self-righteousness that stands in opposition to the creator. Like I said, that's not a good place to be. So instead of this approach, bring your doubts, your troubled heart toward God. Ask him your questions. Trust in his character that he's good, that he's gracious and kind and loving, that he cares about your questions. Let him form a response to your questions in your heart and help you align with the truth of who he is. Okay, that was moral intuition. The next one was feelings. If moral intuition falls short as being a good standard for truth, how much more so feelings? (laughs) I look at myself as an example. I have this simple formula that operates in me. No food equals grumpy bill. No food, bad feelings. My feelings are subject to my caloric intake, it turns out. The same goes with sleep. But then just think about triggering my insecurities my fear of failure, you know? Oh, yeah, you'll get my feelings feeling. (laughs) What about when I feel misunderstood or I'm falsely accused? 
My feelings go places, guys. I don't know about yours. This is just me. I'm not saying anyone else is like this. Just me. And maybe someone in the room can cry at a movie if they just play the right music at the right moment. Don't raise your hands. I'm not fessing up to that. You don't go to the movies with me, and even if you do, it's dark. You have no idea whether I cry easily at movies or not. Does it really make sense to stake my understanding of God and his scripture on such as this? (laughs) Not in my experience. I don't know about yours. Do I really want to like imagine standing before God someday and going, hey, creator of the universe, almighty God, I know you have a whole book that told me about who you are and what you're like, but I I just went based on how I felt. Doesn't that sound like ridiculous and kind of scary? (laughs) Again, I don't mean to put down anyone who has let this happen to them. Anyone who's deconstructing or asking questions. Um, And actually, feelings matter. Your feelings matter. I'm not saying feelings don't matter. I'm just saying they're not a good leader. They're not good at being counted upon to be steady and faithful and true. They're not great decision makers. And so to lean on feelings for decisions of eternal consequence is just not wise. Instead, what we can do is we can gather up how we feel. We can gather up good rational thinking. We can go to God in prayer, to his word. We can go into church history and pull up faithful responses, orthodox responses to our questions, and we can gather those all together and seek to align ourselves with the truth. That's a good way to do it. That's a good way to do it. Okay, the third um, unworthy standard of truth is the social imaginary. Were you waiting for this? Some of you have read Carl Truman's book, and so you know this is coming, or like what this is, but some of you may not. The social imaginary is this strong factor at work in all of us, and we're mostly unaware of it. It's sort of like water to fish. It's what you swim in. It's the culture you swim in. It's ubiquitous. It's inescapable. And we don't even realize it's there. It consists of like assumptions and attitudes about life and the way the world works. And they operate more on a subconscious level than something that you're actually engaging with. We like to think that our perspectives are based on careful, rational thought. At least I do. Like, I've thought things through. I, you know, I know what I'm doing here. But the truth is, <laughs> we're not quite so put together and smart as we think sometimes. Sometimes we fool ourselves when we say we're, we've got it all together and we really don't. Most of life is lived from quick brain reactions to things. You know what I mean? Like, you go out in the woods and you hear a rustling, and you see a shadow because it's dark, and you assess quickly, is that an animal that's going to eat me? And if so, you fight or you run, right? That's not this process of rational thinking. That's your brain helping you survive. And actually, probably more of life than we'd like to admit functions in that way. And so it's good when you come to questions of the faith, when you renovate your faith, when you have doubts, to actually think about how much subconscious 
cultural pressure is leaning on me right now. Our current American culture has plenty to say about Christianity, doesn't it? It's mostly negative. I guess it depends on how you curate your social media feeds. Maybe you get some positive stuff. But the world has lots of negative messages about Christianity, guys. It says Christians are racist and hateful. That's part of the social imaginary you're swimming in. Sorry, it just is. Those are messages of the moment, though. Those are cultural messages of the moment. They're not actually grounded in historical fact and truth. Right? I started the message admitting how much dirt and grime and filth there is in church history, right? So there's some truth to it. But actually, when Christianity is aligned with God's word and his will and his heart, it's exactly not racist. (laughs) Remember how Jesus included Jews and Samaritans? You know how Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles? So much of his letters are about being against something like racism. Guys, don't divide over this. Come together around Jesus. That's what Christianity is actually about. Our call is to take the good news about Jesus to all nations. That's inclusive of every race, every ethnicity, whatever language you speak, whatever type of person you are. And it doesn't destroy who people are. It embraces them as they are and makes this multicultural family of faith. That's awesome. That is awesome. The church, when following the way of Jesus, is not hateful either. Sure, there are examples of that happening, but it's not in alignment with God's will, his word, or his way. See, God is love, the Bible says. Jesus loved us and gave his life for us, and he commands us to be like him and love one another. Read John (laughs) as a case study. So Jesus' followers who are faithful lay down their lives for other people because that's what our Savior did. Okay, so my advice for a faith renovation. Build on a firm foundation. Don't build on weak foundations like your own moral intuition, your feelings, or just what culture is saying. Don't build there. Build on Jesus. Build on the character of God. Build on faithful interpretations of his scripture. Look for faithful, orthodox responses to the issues in church history or current day authors who do a good job of it. And be patient. This is really good advice. Be patient. Don't rush this. If you have questions and you have doubts, take your time. It's all right. You know, come toward Jesus where you're at right now. Tell him about it. Hey, I've got some doubts. Hey, I need to put my finger in your hand a little bit here. Can I come by your side and see where the spear pierced you a little bit? I need some help. Just be patient. Take one thing at a time. Don't overhaul it all at once. When we we bought that house, we're like, all right, let's shore up the outside. Get a new front door that doesn't have a hole in it. Let's replace the windows that are broken, right? And then we started working inside. Take take it slow. Be patient. Okay, advice for those of you serving as renovation guides. When we're guiding one another through faith renovations. Don't harshly 
confront people with the truth. <laughs> Don't use this sermon against anyone. I said some things that are tough, right? And I loop back around to say, hey, here's what I mean by this. Full of compassion. It's to help you. Don't beat anyone up with my sermon, please. Instead, ask questions. Seek to understand where someone's at, how they feel. Because feelings do matter. Where they're coming from. What relationship issues they've gone through that led them to this point. Remember, you are the extended nail-scarred hands of Jesus. Reach out. Connect. Pull them in. Offer yourself for their benefit. You don't have to convince them of anything. You don't have to fix them. Remember, we're all renovating. They're just at a different type of renovation than you are. They're, they're not a broke thing you have to fix. And besides, if anyone's job is to convince and fix, it's the Holy Spirit. We're off the hook. <laughs> yeah, just let him lead you and guide you as you serve someone in such a situation. And be patient. Be patient. If you have family members and friends who are going through this kind of thing, be patient. It takes time. We're all doing it anyway. <clears throat> Actually, the calmer you are and the more confident you are that Christianity is sturdy and solid and reliable, the better guide you are. And it is. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about that next week. <laughs> I got one more week with you. So. All right, in conclusion... Does your faith look like my first house? <laughs> are there some things that are damaged and in need of renovation? Do you struggle with doubt, disillusionment, or disbelief? Do what this slide says. Find Jesus in that place. He's there and he's willing to meet you. He knows where you're at. His heart is to come close to you. He has compassion for you. And... When he meets you there, all he's going to say is, come on, follow me. Amen. Awesome. Thank you for bringing that word to us. Yeah, so applicable, right? All right, well, let's just respond in prayer. Bow your heads with me. Thank you, Lord, for the word that you gave this morning, just shedding your truth on something that is very prevalent in the world that we live in. So I just pray blessing over each one here today, each one listening to this message today, Lord, that wherever they're at, whether they're in that place of renovation, of, of doubt, um, or whether they're going to act more as a guide, I just pray blessing that, the, that you, Holy Spirit, would cause the truth that each one of us needs to hear today to go deep into our hearts and transform us. Help us to continually just be committed to allowing you to renovate us, to grow us through discipleship. Thank you, Lord, and I pray a blessing over each person today. We're called to change the world, and we can do that by the sphere of people that we interact with each day, each week, each making a difference in those lives collectively will change the world. And so I just pray blessing over each one as they go this week and they live for you and they go through the struggles of everyday life 
and, uh, and the joys of everyday life. We just bless them in Jesus' name. Amen.